0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We're very, very pleased to uh, have this event on Venezuela this afternoon. And uh, I'm not about to monopolize the whole time by speaking myself. <laughs> you, know, you, you didn't come here to hear myself. Um, we'll begin with the introductory remarks by John Walters, Uh, who is Chief Operating Officer of of the Hudson Institute and the Director of Hudson Institute Political Studies. From 2001 to 2009, he directed the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. In that role, Mr. Walters guided all aspects of federal drug policy and helped build critical programs to counter narco-terrorism in Latin America. And without any further ado, don't jump. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
2: Uh, thank you, Ambassador Darren Bloom. Uh, uh, it's a great pleasure for me to join my colleague, uh mean Darren Bloom, here for this important session. Um, as uh, as he explained, my. Uh, Um, knowledge of Latin America is a little distorted because I've done most of that work in in government on the issue of drugs and security uh, rule of law, going back to uh, even the Reagan administration uh, in various capacities. Um, But in that process, I've met very many brave and wonderful people in the region who are fighting for justice rule of law, a better future for their families and their fellow citizens. Some of them, in the course of that, of course, have lost their lives to violence, to corruption, to um, crime. And unfortunately, um, some, of course, continue to do that today. Um, We're today going to be... uh, uh, able to discuss, frankly, some of the challenges in Venezuela, which has been racked by decades of destructive uh, political forces. Um, and uh, um, uh, I think it, anyone who knows the region and, and sees this has been heartbroken by the continued and sustained uh, destructiveness. Um, There is much that might be done and should be done to help to to move reform forward uh, that I I know this program today and some of the speakers will touch on, but uh, we at Hudson have tried to uh, continually um, work on issues of individual freedom, rule of law, justice prosperity and uh, tried to work with our uh, allies in the international community and and give voice to the concerns that should be more visible to us all. Uh, And I want to thank Ambassador Boom and our panelists here, who he will introduce, for uh, giving us the benefit of their knowledge and the ability to do this work. We could not do it without uh, people who know what's going on on the ground. So thank you all. Thank you for for being here, and uh, I won't get in the way of the rest of the program.
0: We will now hear from our main speaker Don Javier I'm trying to find your full name. Don Javier Corrales from Amherst where he where he is a professor of political science. Javier is an old friend of harm of uh, Hudson. He has been in numerous programs that throughout, since uh, we started doing this project in 2005. And he has been always very, he provides enlightenment Mm -hmm. and provides us with uh, tranquility in our work. Without any further ado,
3: Mr. Corrales. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Um, let me get my sure my computer and um, get set up here. Excuse me, one second. Just wanna. So essentially, if I wanna move forward, I do this, right? Perfect. Okay. Great. And um, uh, everyone can hear me. Yes, the volume is okay. Sorry. The, the, the
0: pot podi-
3: the entire possible we did see better from
0: people inside and should
3: have the other. Um, there's another,
0: there's another side.
4: Oh there's a
3: good. is that better? Does that help? Yeah. Um uh, I don't think I can move this. Um and, and what among you, what, <laughs> what about <laughs> us? Yeah, what about, <laughs> what about us? <laughs> we're, we're oh um well um th- right. I love it. Everybody's making accommodations for me. Uh, uh, Great treatment. Thank you very much. Um, um, Great. So what I would like to do is um, to discuss, as the title of the talk conveys, the resilience of the Maduro administration and why this is puzzling. Um, Let me begin by saying that it could very well be that Venezuela represents the most challenging political and economic crisis in the Americas, not just today, but in a while, and probably in the world. Um, it's, the crisis hasn't reached bottom yet. It could get worse. But I think most people who focus on the issue, either uh, full-time or part-time, come out of this situation thinking that this is a real mess uh, the economic numbers uh, speak for themselves. And so the reason why this is a mystery topic is because one would have expected, given the seriousness of the crisis in the country, one would have expected this regime to come down somewhat. Not necessarily to uh, come down in the direction of the opposition, but at least some kind of crack. And the Maduro administration has been governing Venezuela for four years. And it doesn't seem like it is in imminent danger, although anything can happen. And so I want to talk about what might be sustaining the regime. I will organize my talks very briefly at the, at the very beginning, talk a little bit about the context. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare the Venezuelan situation today with other crisis in Latin America where we have seen interrupted presidencies, where administrations had to uh, come to an end before their terms expire, and compare Venezuela with those other cases in order in order to be able to provide some insights into what is sustaining the regime. And I think it's more useful to do that comparatively. So first, a little bit of the context: the economic crisis in Venezuela. Venezuela today has the four, it it manifests the four most serious economic problems of the 20th century. One has been the populism of South America that produces high inflation, capital flight, and high debt. Big time in the 70s and 80s, we thought it was a thing of the past, Venezuela has that now, with uh, the highest inflation rate in the world, and now for several years among the top. It also has the problems of command economies. Uh, During the Cold War era, we had a lot of command economies and we knew that the problem there was scarcity and a collapse of domestic production. Venezuela has those. Hyperinflation plus debt and also scarcity and bread lines and long lines. Um, Number three. The problem that we observe in the way that neo-patrimonial societies in sub-Saharan Africa operate, in which the state collude with illegal forces to run illicit businesses, very much part of post-colonial neo-patrimonial sub-Saharan Africa, Venezuela is a perfect example of it now. There is a lot of evidence that the state is uh, um, in collusion with um, actors who operate outside of the law for profit. And finally, it has the typical problem of petrostates, which is a completely non-diversified economy that, in addition, tends to be enormously non-transparent. So there you have it, right next to uh, 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 us, you know, a three-hour flight from Miami. We have all the terrible problems of the 20th century combined in that little country. And yet the regime survived. So um, why? How 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 has this administration managed not just to deliver this set of crises but survived? So let's let's look at some of these slides and we can discuss them at the end. Um, I, I know that the print is very small, but let's let me just give you the information here. What you have here is all the administrations in Latin America that since nineteen eighty four to the present have had to abandon office for one reason or another. Um, there are 20 in total, at the bottom I have Maduro, he has an abandon but I'm going to do some comparisons. And there you have it from, you know, Bolivia in 1985, all the way to Brazil 2016 with the impeachment of President Rousseff. Um, now, they have come to an end through a variety of types. And that's what, uh, let me just give you the kind of pressures that we have seen. Either a coup or military pressure, we have four cases. Um, resignations, typically that involves military pressure as well, but at least let's just say the civilian authority decided to resign, six cases. Um, impeachment or threat of impeachment, six cases. Um, president pressure to shorten his or her term, two cases. A combination of resignations and coup one example, and a combination of an impeachment with a little bit of a pressure, one case. And that gives us 20 in total. That's the universe. And let me now give you an idea of what scholars have said is around this universe of cases. What are the factors that prompt these early terminations? And here I am borrowing substantially from work other work done by other scholars. Some of you may know them: John Kerry, Anibal Perezignian, Leif or uh, Mariana Janos. Um, so I'm going to summarize the scholarship. This is not work I've done, but summary that I'm doing. Uh, now, I'm going to go through a list of uh, issues that prompt these. And um, do I have a laser beam here? Is this a... It doesn't work right on. It doesn't work, okay. All
1: right.
3: So uh, the first thing that I want you to notice is that some of the most important variables don't seem to be constant. Three of the most important variables is there has to be a constitutional crisis, and so we have yeses for the cases that meet those conditions, or a military crisis or a type of an electoral crisis. Uh, uh, Something went awfully wrong during the election. And there doesn't seem to be a pattern when you just look at these three triggers. But scholars have digged in further, and they have found that, well, there are more causes to these crises, and they have added to the list. And so uh, uh, new research has tried to find more supporting conditions for these crises, and the list here expands. It now includes a includes a very serious economic crisis of some sort. This variable is definitely much more frequent. Um, whether. Oh, great! I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Um. Another important condition is whether the president is minority in Congress. This seems to be almost a, 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 an incredibly common condition. The president, lo- This is what uh, Pérez Lignan would call the president loses its legislative shield. And some form of street protest that overwhelms the country. And finally major defections from the ruling party. So this is different from having a minority in Congress, but you also see defections. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice from all of this information, and I realize that it's a lot, is that um, um, it's not easy to bring an administration down. One factor alone won't do it. For the most part, you need a combination of factors. You need an alignment of many terrible crises happening simultaneously. And so it's not necessarily a good thing to see something like this. Normally, an interrupted presidency is a sign of a lot of things going wrong. Let me say that this, the problem with the studies, of course, if there are political scientists in the room, they're going to be criticizing me rightly because I'm just looking at cases based on the dependent variable. And I, I, agree that this is a limitation. But at least we can see what is the commonality of these otherwise very different cases. And they, they're not that rare. They, we have seen 20 out of 129 administrations. And as I was saying, they are hard to, to come by. Um, Uh, cases that have fewer than three factors zero cases that have fewer than two that have three two um 3.51 and the majority have four factors going for it sometimes even more so there needs to be a lot what is interesting and now let me go directly into venezuela and stop the theory and the comparison is that by all counts venezuela today needs definitely three of these conditions, probably four. I am now comparing here the Maduro situation today, excuse me, um, which is here with other situations in Venezuela where there was an interrupted presidency. Chavez in 2002, remember when he was briefly removed from office and returned to office, this is perhaps the most amazing coup I have seen in my life. Not because the president was taken away. We see that often, not as often in Latin America, but because the president was returned. That you don't see a lot of. Um, and and then the case of Perez in Venezuela in nineteen ninety three when he resigned facing impeachment threat. And Gallegos in Venezuela in nineteen forty eight. And and so here are the conditions that these cases need, And at least we can be sure that Maduro has the problem of a major electoral crisis as a result of the defeat in the National Assembly elections at the end of 2015. You have a harrowing economic crisis and it's a minority in Congress. So it has this much. And one could argue is their fourth condition. And there was for a while street protests prevailing in Venezuela in 2014, but they have subsided significantly. So in many ways, it hasn't reached the point where it becomes more likely than not. This is the, the first lesson, is that it seems that uh, uh, um, things are very bad, going badly, but maybe it's not there yet. Perhaps if we see one of these other conditions emerge, the return of street protests or a military crisis, Maybe, maybe we might be closer to a break in the administration, but perhaps we're not there just yet. Let me say a few more things about this and and then uh, um, um, offer some additional thoughts on on what else might be sustaining the regime. So um, one of the things that the Maduro administration has done remarkably well considering how much incompetence surrounds the running of this government, is to try to prevent some of these potential additional crises that could surface. And if you indulge me a few minutes, I would like to discuss uh, several of these strategies followed by the administration, how I see them, what they have done right, and, and what are some of the vulnerabilities. And the first one is how they have avoided a constitutional crisis, how they have avoided a typical situation which you have, um, uh, a major dispute in the country about whether the country, the government is violating the constitution. Almost everybody who is serious knows that the country, the government is no longer in adherence with the most important precepts of Venezuela's constitution, and yet this doesn't produce a crisis. And the reason is because Maduro has invented something, not hasn't invented, has perfected something that we didn't see in previous cases in Latin America, which is, to borrow from Aníbal Pérez Líñán's term, what I would call judicial shield. It has pretty much changed the constitutional composite the composition of the Supreme Court to make it another branch of the executive branch. Another, um, and so... Since 2015, essentially since 2014, um, the courts side with the executive branch on every crisis. And what they have done essentially is to eliminate the uh, autonomy and operation of the National Assembly, which is where the opposition has some degree of political presence. So they have acquired this judicial shield that they deploy on every decision, from the most trivial to the most significant, such as, should we have an election? The president decides we're not going to have an election for a recall referendum. The court says that's perfectly valid. The president wants more executive powers. The court says that's legal. The opposition says we're going to try to pass a law uh, uh, to release prisoners. The court says they are acting illegally. It's a great tool and it's not going to go anywhere, the court is not fracturing, and it's uh, operating, and it is being observed. With the military crisis, what uh, I think many of you in the room may know much more about this than I do, but it is very important that we understand how, starting under Chavez, but especially under Maduro, this has become a sort of military junta government the military, the high echelons of the military not only control important parts of the cabinet and the public administration, they not only control the distribution of food and the uh, 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 the way that food is being uh, distributed by private markets, but the military has also become an important actor in the drug trade. There has been a recent report issued by a former Um, Judge um, uh, Mildred Camero, it came out a few days. Um, It doesn't have a lot of evidence, but it has plenty of circumstantial evidence saying that there has been a real change in drug trafficking in Venezuela. Not that there is more, but that now it's really led by the security apparatus. Um, There is plenty of evidence to suggest that ever since the military was given the role to investigate drug trade criminal issues in Venezuela they have used that type of information to also become involved in, 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 in this operation so what you have is the key point is what you have is a government that has been given to the military both its legal dimensions and its non-legal dimensions they are the custodians and so the military has a huge incentive in preserving the status quo, or if you will, a huge incentive in preventing outsiders from coming in and investigate what they have been up to. Their complicitness in this type of governance is so deep that they are now feeling they need assurances that if for some reason there is a switch to another team that they themselves are not gonna pay a heavy price. And that's a hard challenge for Venezuela, but it's a strategy on the part of Maduro to get the military to be that, uh, um, compromised. Um, uh, with electoral defeats, we have seen the result is we're not going to have elections. The era, uh, uh, of multiple successive elections under Chavez is gone now. They're going to try to postpone them, and if they hold them, we're going to see far more irregularity. Here, the regime is behaving like a classic autocratic regime, playing every possible trick to undermine electoral politics with great success. This issue is, of course, the issue that has scandalized the OAS Secretary General the most because it's such an egregious violation of democracy when all the steps exist for elections to take place, and the government decides that they're not going to hold them until further notice. That seems to be a threshold that very few Latin American countries uh, cross nowadays, uh, but Venezuela did. Uh, With economic crisis, I already uh, talked about the, the depth of the crisis, but remember a point that political scientists always make, which is economic crisis do weaken democracies and produce instability and might precipitate early termination of presidencies, maybe even transition to autocracies. But they don't have that kind of a devastating impact on autocracies. Autocracies, by their very nature, have the ability to survive economic crisis. We see it over and over again only those dictatorships that have a very strong connection to certain market forces might suffer. But so many others find ways to insulate the key pillars of the regime from the crisis and create clusters of protection from the um, uh, effects of a crisis that they remain able to carry on. Um, This has been proven statistically Uh, uh, I haven't seen uh, uh, more recent studies, but studies from the early 1990s clearly showed that one of the problems of promoting democracy through economic sanctions is that many times the intended governments are autocracies that do not respond as we expect them uh, uh, by punishing them economically. So Maduro has been able to insulate important sectors of the pillars who support, that support him from uh, the vestiges of the crisis. Um, the fact that they're a minority in Congress, they use the judicial shield to basically declare the National Assembly to be essentially illegal and not paying any attention to anything that they do. So uh, most of the laws and studies that the National Assembly have tried to do um, are simply not taken care of. Let me just say one thing you might ask. Could they do an impeachment in Venezuela? And the answer is they can't do an impeachment. Thank you, Hugo Chavez. In Venezuela, there used to be uh, the possibility of an impeachment. Uh, prior to Chavez, but Chavez changed the constitution, deleted the impeachment procedure, replacing it with a recall referendum. Back then, people thought that this was more democratic, more participatory. A recall referendum gave the people, not the politicians, the keys to power. Now we know better that in reality, it was a gimmick. Uh, the, the recall referendum is so difficult, and in Venezuela, given the rules of, uh, for conducting it, are, which are so strict, that it's really uh, uh, not uh, uh, that great of a tool. So they cannot impeach. They could try to do a recall referendum. They only had one year to do it. They managed to get all the to, to follow all the steps to start the recall referendum, but they were blocked from doing so by the electoral authorities. Now, let me say something about street protests. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and then one more point, and then I'll conclude. It is remarkable that there aren't more street protests now, but only, only if you don't understand how exhausted Venezuelans are from trying to survive in what is now becoming one of the most unlivable countries in the Americas. Um, Nevertheless, that is not the only explanation. It's not just exhaustion from trying to survive adversity, but also repression. It's very important that we keep this in mind. This administration has really applied important levels of repression that work. Um, during the 2014 protests, there were about 3,000 house arrests. This is important because you want to ar- you know, one thing is to arrest people who are outside protesting, but another thing is for the, uh, state, uh, for state officials to go into people's homes after the protest and take individuals away from their households. This has an incredibly chilling effect. And in many ways, this type of repression, although the mass numbers of 2014 haven't recurred, there is systematic increase in uh, detentions. There were at least 2,000 last year. And Venezuelans know that uh, they could very easily see their lives uh, uh, completely, uh, their liberties completely ended because this is a, a, um, an instrument that the regime is now using systematically, frequently, and in my opinion, with success in deterring the rise of protests. Um, Finally, this is really the most interesting thing. When I was studying, when I was in graduate school back in the 1990s, my my dissertation was about uh, whether ruling parties were supporting the president or not, and and so I'm I'm, I'm generally, I think I have some, uh, I pay some attention to this, and I have to say, it is really remarkable how few big people in the government have defected. There have been some, but I think what you might disagree, but what I think is so interesting is how they have all stuck together. There isn't the proverbial split between hardliners and softliners, or disenchanted chavistas. If they are, they have left unceremoniously and having no impact. I think the reason for this is that um, Maduro, and most scholars agree with this, is not the towering leader that we had with chavez who was the final decision maker but he has morphed chavismo into a sort of like collegial rule everybody is allowed to have its own fief done different sectors of the civilian establishment have power pockets that they enjoy uh Maybe at some point, I made the mistake of saying personally that Maduro had become a puppet. Probably that was an overstatement. But I still think it is correct that he takes cues from others rather than him providing more cues, and that this form of uh, accommodation has allowed him to maintain a certain degree of um, uh, esprit de corps among the uh, chavistas. So uh let me now conclude and then we can uh, uh, uh go to the comments. You know, I always think that the discussants provide really the most uh, uh um interesting points after a talk, but here for you I am highlighting my uh, uh central argument, uh which is um as I said, and to repeat, number one. It could very well be that in terms of all the potential political crises that one can expect, the regime is not quite there yet. But also, and this is point number two, the regime, by turning more autocratic and shaping autocracy in the direction of responding through these mechanisms, has been able to insulate itself from what could otherwise be a real Uh, danger for the survival of this regime. And so to conclude, I don't think we're going to see the end of the Maduro administration in the near term unless things change. But if they stay this way, I expect continuity. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, Those were my remarks.
0: We have a period for questions after the uh, two commentaries that we'll listen to now. The first one by our esteemed friend and colleague, uh, Gustavo Coronel.
5: Well, uh, I have one slide, but I, before I show it, before I show it, uh, I would like uh, to comment uh, quite briefly on Javier's uh, very organized uh, presentation. Uh, I do believe that uh, Javier's presentation uh, gives a very good historical uh, recollection of why Maduro has not yet uh, been overthrown. I doubt that uh, his approach has a predictive value. Uh, I think it's very valuable for the things that have happened so far. I I am not so sure that it will serve to predict whether Maduro will fall briefly or not. For example, I see that uh, he has made Maduro, or he has put under Maduro, three factors. Of the uh, and he says that uh, if I remember correctly he says that uh, probably if, if at least four factors or more are required for a government to, to be ousted. Uh, I believe that Maduro has more than three factors uh, uh, according to, to the to, to the tabulation that we saw. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, he mentions that uh, that there is no judicial uh, rather that there, there is no crisis uh, regarding uh, the judicial aspect. Uh, let me see exactly what the situation is here. Well maybe you can... Is it possible for for you to put the last uh, slide of, of Javier? Uh, don't, don't worry. Uh, we, we won't. We won't have to wait. Uh, one one aspect uh, that that, or here here we are. The uh, he says Javier says no constitutional crisis in Venezuela now because the judicial shield uh, is killing or suppressing the constitutional crisis. But of course, the the, the existence of this uh, uh, duplicity between the judicial uh, power and the legislative power is in itself one of the greatest constitutional crises that we have ever had in in Venezuela. So the, the fact that there is a judicial shield does not make the constitutional crisis disappear. So I believe there is a, a, a very strong constitutional crisis going on in, in Venezuela. He also says uh, that... Uh, There is no electoral, there is uh, no electoral crisis because uh, simply they are suppressing elections. The the fact that they are suppressing elections in Venezuela today uh, intensify the the likelihood of other aspects uh, emerging in Venezuela, like street protests. Uh, There will have to be a point in which uh, Venezuelans will realize that the only way to uh, to change things in Venezuela is through uh, civic action or insurgents, uh, because the electoral uh, path is completely closed. Uh, Javier, for example, I think he has not mentioned something that I believe is playing a very important role nowadays. Uh, I am talking of external external pressure. I, I don't see I don't see external pressure there as a factor. Uh, I know that in Argentina, external pressure has been a factor, a very strong factor. And now in Venezuela, uh, as as you can see from the, what the OAS is doing, there is a very strong external pressure. Even if the OAS is not doing exactly what it should be doing, uh, they, they now have 20 countries calling Venezuela to either for election, either for elections or to be expelled from the organization. And I believe that this ex- external pressure is, is mounting even more so. So I would say basically looking at, at the scheme of Javier that probably Maduro has uh, maybe four or even five factors playing into, into his uh, potential uh, ousting uh that's basically what I wanted to say about uh, Javier's uh, presentation and I have one slide that more empirically shows my reasons why I believe maduro still is in power and and two of these uh, reasons are uh external and the other two reasons are domestic reasons uh, the first reason, which is an external uh, reason, is that uh, the, the amount of money, the, the amount of money that uh, uh, Chavez and Maduro ha- have had, uh, have led uh, to the co-opting of uh, uh, not only countries in, in Latin America, but also the people inside the country. Uh, you have to see, for example, what is going on in the OAS. So far, in the OAS, the only countries blocking a severe sanction against uh, Venezuela are the countries from the Petrocaribe area and uh, and the ALBA uh, uh, group. And basically, the Petrocaribe area, with uh, maybe two percent of the population, are blocking. Uh, the sanctions against Venezuela, uh, against uh, the 98% uh, uh, of the rest of the countries. Uh, So I I believe the oil money has been the main factor why Chavez first and Maduro later have remained in power. The second reason, I believe, has to do with uh, conflicting and uh, short-term national interests. For example, two countries. The U.S. for several years now, the United States has been the main supporter of the Maduro regime uh, under the Obama presidency. And uh, now we see in retrospective how Thomas Shannon in the Department of State was the main factor in keeping The concept of the dialogue uh, surviving in spite of the knowledge that we all have that this famous dialogue is not only immoral but also strategically useless, and uh, and now you 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 still see in the OAS yesterday most of the countries calling for for a dialogue uh, between between the narco regime and the victims of the narco regime. Uh, I, I say that is almost like uh, calling for Hitler sitting around the table with the Jewish population that was uh, in their way to the crematories. Uh, not that, not as extreme as that, but uh, certainly that's, that's probably a similar example. So the US has been the main supporter of the Maduro regime. Uh, But now, as we know, uh, this has changed radically with the new uh, administration in in the White House. Not that I support the new administration, (laughs) but uh, in this particular case, uh, it's uh, looking like doing the, the right thing. The other country. That had conflicting national interests with uh, uh, and supported Maduro is or has been and still is Colombia. Colombia, uh, Venezuela's neighbor, needs Venezuela or needs Maduro to be his main supporter with uh, his uh, affair, uh, love affair with with the FARC, as as long as as this uh, link. Where these peace uh, conversations and negotiations were underway uh, santos could not afford to antagonize uh, maduro and still uh, maduro is uh, is a hot potato for for uh, president santos and you could see in in the oAS yesterday how Colombia uh, spoke of uh, dialogue of civilized dialogue uh, it never spoke about uh, sanctions against uh, Venezuela. Now, the third reason has to do with uh, with the prostitution of the Venezuelan armed forces. Uh, it's not that the armed forces in Venezuela have ever been a positive uh, factor in Venezuelan history, but uh, now it's totally totally disastrous. The Venezuelan Armed Forces are now leading the narco-traffic, as Javier has uh, suggested. Not only that, they are—they have in their hands the food distribution in Venezuela. Uh, what they are distributing is uh, uh, what is left after they themselves satisfy their own requirements. But what they are doing is to sell or resell these uh, food bags uh, that are imported at a cost of uh, 8 uh, 800 dollars per bag and have a real value of maybe 80 or 90 dollars per bag and and the rest of the money is pocketed by the Venezuelan armed forces now as long as the armed forces in Venezuela are support in the regime in fact as long as the armed forces in Venezuela are in power, uh, because forget about Maduro. Uh, The real power in Venezuela is the armed forces. The first reason, the the final reason, is a combination of uh, very severe government controls, uh, price controls, uh, exchange controls, uh, all kinds of of controls that you can imagine together with what I call elegantly, so to speak, weak civic response, not to say cowardice from uh, many of the leaders of the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, There are certainly heroes in Venezuela among the opposition leaders. Uh, They are all in prison, and the, the ones who are not in prison, uh, are actually looking for an accommodation with the Maduro government because they have been, after so many years and after so much money running around in the country, they have been progressively co-opted by by the regime. So the, this combination of four uh, reasons es- explain why Maduro is still in power. Uh, this no, doesn't mean to say that this is going to stay like like this for the foreseeable future. For example, oil money is uh, running out very quickly. Uh, Petrocaribe still works, but uh, is m- so much weaker now that at any moment this uh, Petro, this Caribbean states blocking in the OAS will uh, will break away. Uh, Conflicting national interests, I don't believe Santos will change his attitude uh, in the coming months, but certainly the U.S. has already changed its attitude. Uh, the armed forces, I think, are a hopeless case because they will only, they will only uh, concede uh, Maduro's ousting when all of the other reasons are sh- so strong that they cannot stop doing anything about it. But they, they have to resist until the last minute because they are involved in, in big crimes against the Venezuelan nation. They are involved in narcotrafficking and in, in gra- grand larceny in Venezuela. So they will be the last uh, uh, bastion of resistance in favor of, of Maduro. And finally... Uh, government controls and civic response. Today in Venezuela, the opposition is being, uh, replaced progressively by a real opposition. Uh, the mud or mood, as you know, as as you know it, uh, is no longer effective. It's being replaced by civic groups that represent a wider aspect of civil society. Uh, There is a group called Ghana. Uh, which is, uh, as his name suggests, is gaining a lot of ground lately. So I believe that uh, in a reasonable short term, Maduro will be will be ousted. Uh, I, I am convinced that he will not finish his uh, normal term for uh, 2019 or 18 or whatever. So uh, thank you very much.
0: we'll have uh, the opportunity to come back to the uh, presentations of uh, our speakers and we'll complete the uh, the roll call here with professor hector chamis go there
4: Well, thank you, thank you so much for invitation. Thank you, Javier, and Javier was talking about when he was in grad school, and that, of course, reminded me of how old we've become and uh, ever since uh, those good times. (laughs) We've been friends for that long, and I'm not gonna give you guys the number, Um, but uh, Javier is a great scholar, Great friend, great guy, and you know, his, his work is always terrific. I, I came here. I don't know who, who's responsible for the title of the session, but I find it mysterious, <laughs> and therefore, you know, I think it's Jaime who always comes up with these things that make you think. And so, I prepared a couple of notes on the, on the title, and then I wrote lots of notes. About uh, Javier's uh, presentation and also Gustavo's comments that were, were right on the money on a number of issues, I believe. So I'm going to try to I don't know all of this in what five minutes to reconcile everything and, I and, and, and 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 deal with that. So let me let me start also trying to reconcile the the uh, theory driving work that Javier presented with the more political, specific, you know, day-to-day issues that uh, are important to understand what's going on, but also were highlighted by Gustavo. And uh, and those things, you know, never go, eh, eh, not always go together. I mean, well, when you when you deal with, you know, building a, a parsimonious explanation, well, you sacrifice detail by definition, and then in the process you, you sort of, you know, you don't, I'm sorry? you don't necessarily speak of, uh, you lose some of the details that uh, allow you to uh, explain uh, and understand a particular case, but that is a trade-off of, you know, uh, the field. Let me say a couple of things. I mean, first thing I thought when I saw Mysterious Resilience of the Maduro regime is that according to some other theory out there, uh, there's no mystery and there's no anomaly. Uh, why? Well, because in the first place, uh, Venezuela, according to that theory, is not supposed to have a democracy in the first place, to begin with. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the theory on the political economy resource curse. I mean, uh, countries uh, endowed with exportable natural resources, oil, minerals, or diamonds, Uh, the economy is highly concentrated on that sector. It crowds out investment on the other sectors. The economy depends on the price cycles of that staple Uh, and therefore accounts for a very particular economic profile of the country which also requires uh, pretty much full control of the state apparatus and therefore democracy is unlikely. Gulf countries, uh, you know, Gulf in the the Asian Gulf, uh, in the Gulf Sea, those countries are not democracies. And in in, in a way, Venezuela was the anomaly of that back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I was always puzzled by Terry Carl's uh, comment in in her chapter, in the transitions volume, and you know, don't cry, but uh, when she says that oil paid the bill for democracy in Venezuela, she has that sentence, which, you know, according to the theory on the political economic resource curse, it wasn't supposed to happen in the first place. So that was perhaps the anomaly, the ability of it of an elite, of a political elite, to make that deal that took them there and, and sustained them in power until the, until the cycle changed by the way in the 80s and you know with the with the, the drop in the price of oil in the 80s and then uh, the the rest of history the the crisis of Carlos Andres Perez and then Chavez and so on and so forth so back to the original argument i had then you know while well, the resilience is based on the super cycle uh, oil over 130 for Quite some time. That was the peak, but you know, stay around 100. I mean, a super cycle of commodities that uh, all the countries in Latin America experience, and and that in in some sense Venezuela is unique, but in some other sense is not unique because the other countries in Latin America went through similar cycle with more or less similar effects over the political uh, process. Uh, the second thing, why the resilience is uh, foreign policy. Uh, Gustavo made a comment about that, mentioned that. and Indeed, indeed, yesterday at the OAS, I was there, and it's still, you know, well, Suriname change, uh, you know, it, its vote, and Antigua, this or that, and the, the little Caribbean islands, uh, there are, you know, uh, 0.3% of the population of the inter-American system and nonetheless have a few votes necessary for the Venezuelan regime to... To find its way. But it's not only that uh, Petro Caribe was wealthy and uh, had an enormous amount of resources, it's also that they were very smart. And they keep being very, very smart. I mean, we don't give them credit as foreign policy makers. We don't give them enough credit. In the art of, uh, mastering foreign policy. Uh, those scenes that we get so horrified and, and, you know, scandals, uh, play a role as well. Uh, Third thing, I must say a word that has been mentioned here, paradoxically, uh, I haven't heard the word pronounced, third factor uh, has a word which is Cuba. Uh, The strategic, profound, and deep presence of Cuba uh, in Venezuelan politics. Javier mentioned repression. Repression is Cuba-style repression, and that's why it's so effective. Uh, going to, it's, it's, it's a carbon copy. I mean, it's, it's, it's the Cubans. Going to see the civil society leaders after the rally, getting them out of, of the home is Cuba 101. Uh, uh, the other reason, there's been a comment by, uh, Gustavo, uh, and I agree on that, Javier didn't mention it, and you have to, Javier. It's the opposition. Uh, Maduro is in power because of the opposition. Uh, Gustavo said that, uh, well, reliable leaders are uh, at home, uh, uh, home arrest like Antonio Ledesma or uh, in jail like Leopoldo López and many others, Uh but I, I think that uh, basically the mood is in the mud. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, and, uh, and that's serious because Javier doesn't have in his chart the issue of uh, street protests. And there's been street protests until the, the end of October. Which, you know, and, and Caracas had, you know, about, uh, I don't know, two or three million people on the streets that day. And, and, and Mood gave, gave them all away. Uh, Henry Ramos, Enrique Capriles, and the others gave them all away. That's, that's the truth. They, they gave away the fact that Venezuelan people had a uh, register to vote in the recall referendum, uh, risking their jobs and their pensions and their grants for students and so on and so forth. Uh, and they registered in extraordinary numbers. Uh, and yet they gave them away, all in a, in a very, uh, still to me, incomprehensible way, uh, in exchange for nothing. Uh, so, that with regards to, to the opposition. The, the, something also I had was about the future. Well, the future is to leave power. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> after 18 years, you have to leave power. If you don't leave power, well, then, you know, this is what's going to happen but at the same time uh, this ain't no uh, augusto pinochet Uh, meaning what and javier uh, touches upon that uh, a little bit uh, with the uh, and gustavo highlighted that also is that there is no uh, augusto pinochet in the sense that there was an authoritarian regime that wrote the rules of uh, how and when it would leave power uh, it's in the 1980 Constitution. There's there's going to be, in 1980, they wrote, there's going to be a plebiscite in 1988, the famous plebiscite of 1988. There's going to be a plebiscite if uh, the no wins, then we're going to call for an election next year. And exactly that's what happened. True, there were some uh, elements within the authoritarian bloc at the time that uh, wanted to reject the results that night. But in the end, they didn't. And that makes all the difference because... That's not how the Venezuelans, uh, the Venezuelan regime seized power largely since the influence of Cuba increased dramatically. Maduro goes to Havana to uh, get advice and comes back uh, weekly. And, uh, and that is uh, something that didn't happen to that extent with Chavez. Uh, and that is not that, uh, Maduro is a Marxist-Leninist or anything, or it doesn't matter. What matters is that he's very short of international support, and then, you know, the Cuban advice is important. And uh, the other part of the deal with Colombia, I believe, has been Cuba, Gustavo, which, you know, has given the, the sort of a comfort zone to the Maduro regime, this triangular negotiation. The Obama administration, uh, new diplomatic relations with cuba and the colombian uh, peace process and that has given a comfort zone you know one-third of the eln uh, resides in venezuela they get in they get out and so on and so forth and etc. Uh, etc. Et one more thing i wanted to say or something about uh, javier's uh, point uh The military has many functions. True, I, I think there is there is something new, a, a sort of a, a general uh, a, a general point uh, about transitions, because Javier does make the point about hardliners, softliners, and and so on and so forth, uh, and that there are no there is no such a thing within the Venezuelan military, uh, as there were within the. Pinochet regime, the um, Uruguayan regime, the Argentine regime during the, the transitions in the eighties, and I think it has to do with uh, the the business of the military, whether that is food or, and that is, which which entails a paradoxical thing. I, th- uh, I think in terms of. Uh, uh, Hardliners and softliners. There is division within the uh, the the armed forces, but is business a business division? It's a division over the markets. It's a division over the goods they deliver. It's a division over whether they are on on drugs or on on smuggling goods from Colombia, or whether they are into food distribution, or whether they have their hands on the uh, humanitarian relief packages that uh, that they sell in the black market, uh, which also is interesting. It doesn't produce, paradoxically, there is a division because there are competing interests, interest, competing firms, if you want, uh, but doesn't produce a political division. Why? Because they cannot conceive of themselves out of power. Being out of power, unlike Pinochet, uh, they who... Who could be out of power? Although in the end he faced a, a crazy Spanish judge, you know, very crazy for himself at the time. A Spanish judge that you know held him, you know, detained in London. Uh, but what we are facing in Latin America is something very new and very peculiar, and and, and Venezuela is, I think, the paradigmatic case, but it's not the only one. Uh, Corruption, Latin America was always very corrupt, right? Well, corrupt Latin American public official is, uh, you know, uh, it's a story. But, uh, but that has changed. It used to be that guy that had a cut for himself. There was a guy that was in charge of a contract, building a bridge, uh, supplying, uh, I don't know, uniforms for the military or whatever you want. Uh, that, there was that guy that... Was what's in there for me, um, Mr. 10% or something like that. Different, different names by which, well, we knew the public sector was corrupt. There are different interpretations for that, whether that's good, bad, or, or whatnot. That has changed. Corruption is not anymore that guy that is seeking private profit. Corruption has become a system of domination. Corruption, the corrupt schemes in Latin America have replaced the political system. They organize the territory, they control the territory, and they divide the territory politically. Well, this territory is yours for whatever you do, smuggling, drugs, or or whatever else. This territory is for me. And there are clashes at the boundaries. Uh, Corruption finances politics, big time. It finances campaigns. Corruption does foreign policy. Nobody remembers that Dilma Rousseff went to inaugurate the Mariel harbor in Cuba and next to her who was honored by her just like the other read her speech that afternoon. Mr. President Castro, Mr. President all the presidents of Latin America were there next to her and, and acknowledged was Mr. Marcelo Odebrecht uh, mm. who built uh, the, the, the harbor. What that means is that Dilma used to go on trips with Marcelo de Brecht. And this is where we're all looking at, you know, well, what's, who's going to fall next, right? Who, who's, what's going to happen? Santos is cornered right now because of that. Well, his campaign manager received money, but he had no clue. He had no clue. Whoever has been five minutes in a campaign knows that the campaign manager knows the socks the candidate is wearing that day. Uh, and vice versa. So what this means is that it's paradoxical in terms of uh, transition literature, Javier, I think. There, there is division, but it's a business division that makes them very homogeneous and cohesive in terms of the politics, because there is one thing they all have in common, no matter what conflicts they may have over the business, which is power. Out of power, they may end up in jail. The example that, that we have to think about uh, which is a dramatically powerful uh, educational example for the Maduro regime, for the Chavistas, is Argentina, where they were so, quote-unquote, stupid that they gave power. And now there is a long line of people uh, going to jail and people uh, in uh, being uh, uh, charged with all kinds of things, including the former president. Uh being out of power is very risky, and that is the biggest problem there is now. This is why there is no negotiation, pretty much. There is this, you know, well, uh, a todo nada, to, uh, right? Uh, and, and this is, the, this is the, the drama of democracy in the region on the one hand, but also putting together a, a, a democratic transition in Venezuela. Thanks so, so much.
0: We'll give now Mr. Corrales, Professor Corrales, a chance to refer to his, uh, to the commentaries made to his presentation by our colleagues here. Um
3: Well, um, is this on? Yeah. I feel very fortunate. Thank you, Gustavo and Hector. Those were great comments. Um, I love that we're adding to the list. of uh, um, I I I don't disagree with anything that you all added. I apologize if my list was incomplete. I recognize um, I I don't uh, have any uh, any any criticisms or or, or uh, reservations about uh, what you guys said. Let me. Um, say one thing about the United States, just not a major disagreement, but perhaps a a different nuance, and then say something about the last point that Hector made about um, being comfortable being as an opposition. Um, I understand the point that the United States has not been leading the charge against uh, the Maduro and even uh, earlier the uh, Chavez administration, I agree. And 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 more could have been done, but they have nonetheless. The United States has been the actor that has produced the most debilitating blows from outside up until now. They were not hard punches necessarily, but they were punches, and that is uh, the work that the FBI and the Treasury Department do. This is what 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 Obama did. He turned the foreign policy of the United States toward Venezuela, away from the State Department, away from Congress, and gave it to the FBI and Treasury Department. There's more nuance there than just uh, uh, being supported. It is true it's not a, a, it it hasn't been uh, a concerted effort uh, to to topple the regime. That uh, I agree. But uh, at the same time, it has also been the most important serious External problem that the that Venezuela has faced. It's a, it's not a a, a dismissible um, uh, policy. Um. When, uh, and then uh, this is the last thing I want to say, I, I love that you brought us to theory. Uh, I love thinking about how there is reason to believe that uh, resource curse theory overpredicts predicts the survival of uh, authoritarianism. Um, empirically, I don't want to get into the details. We know that the case is not as strong as we would like it to believe. If you get If you control for Arabness, you have more variation in regime type, even in Venezuela, but you're absolutely right. Um, that line of thinking says it's very difficult to topple uh, petrostates, very, very difficult, especially if they turn more autocratic. There's no disagreement there. This is perhaps what the Venezuelan opposition is up against. This is what makes the Venezuelan opposition so different from other oppositions because they have to topple a petrostate that is increasingly more authoritarian. And then, um, Hector made a point that I think is worth restating because it's really, I think, also crucial in democratic theory. We came to the understanding in the eighty, in the nineteen eighties, that the incumbents have to feel safe moving to the opposition. Every political actor in a democracy has to come to believe that being in power does not mean that they will win everything, and being in opposition, you're in a you're in like uh, no gains, and. Unless you get, and and in democracy, you always need an opposition. So you cannot have democracy with opposition, but the opposition has to feel that they can be safe. And we're not there in Venezuela. This is the point that Hector makes, and to some extent Gustavo uh, um, uh, um, uh, alluded to, and that is that uh, they're very afraid to be in the opposition. And for whatever reasons, the military or uh, other folks, and, and I have to say that this is a very powerful argument. If I have a criticism of the opposition, I probably wouldn't be as, as tough as you were, Gustavo. I always praise the opposition in Venezuela. I always say that in no other Latin American country have we seen this level of unity, have we seen this rise from the ashes, have we seen this ability to, to match the electoral strength of Chavismo. But having said that, perhaps its biggest failing has been to not create an environment for the worst offenders to feel that it is safe to step outside. In fact, Ramos Musalup had a a big blunder recently. Who knows if this is ethically correct to think about uh, uh, making safe spaces for the opposition, but I think that until we're there, um, there's going to be a lot of hesitation to, to break away from Maduro. Those were my points. Thank you very much to the two of you.
0: I love them. Very good. You have any thoughts on this?
5: Well, actually, uh, I think I failed to emphasize the connection between the Obama administration, uh, the Cuban government, and the Venezuelan uh, government. Uh, I believe that uh, this is a very strong link. Uh, the o- Obama wanted uh, to, uh, his legacy was to leave Cuba uh, as a, under the uh, democratic umbrella of the Americas, uh, and for this he, he felt he could sacrifice, uh, the, the, the democracy in Venezuela for a few more years, uh, leaving Maduro in charge. Uh, I believe that he failed in Cuba and he has also failed in, in Venezuela. Uh, so, uh, What Javier says uh, is uh, probably softened by the fact uh, that the main efforts uh, in the U.S. against the Maduro regime uh, were not made by the Department of State, but they were made by the uh, FBI and by uh, investigative organizations, and, and also fundamentally by the Senate by the Congress of the United States. They were the ones that kept pressuring Obama, and Obama kept resisting up to the, to the last minute.
4: No, it's just, just one thing. I, I on, on Javier's comment about, well, it's very difficult to topple a petro state, indeed, uh, even more so a petro-narco state. That's, that's the point I wanted to, yeah. to make, which is in so many ways unique. This is yeah. the, the, the country with the largest reserves in the world, uh, where the state is in control of a criminal organization or sets of organizations. The the, the Treasury Department report on the vice president is is absolutely uh, demolishing. But it's not the first time either, when Traveror was in charge uh, he was made interior minister to grant him immunity. At the same time, this is the, the it's it's a it's a state yes. that that responds on behalf of uh, of criminals uh, as the were, <laughs> and and that makes it all the more difficult.
0: Yeah. Okay, now a few questions from uh, our esteemed guests today. Yes, sir. I I will kindly request to give us name and uh, affiliation.
2: Sure. My name is Rex, so I've been with Northern Resource. And uh, my question to the esteemed panel, thank you for all the presentations, all very informative. One topic uh, which was not covered, I, I hope that you all may briefly comment, uh, with all due respect to the powerful role, for better or worse, that the United States played in uh, this hemisphere during the Cold War. Since the Cold War, new power centers in the world have emerged. And I was hoping that you may comment on the perhaps significant impact that uh, Chinese and, to a lesser extent, uh, Russian investment in Venezuela may have had in uh, the continuation of the regime. Thank you.
3: Oh, okay. Um, Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, um, China has been the most important um, support of uh, Venezuela. That's absolutely. Uh, clear and uh, bailing them out. Uh, it could very well be that if you, we talked to folks in Beijing, they probably would treat Venezuela as their first example of their foreign aid going badly. You know, uh, The United States has plenty of examples of that, but Venezuela is probably the one. But they have not pulled the plug. And until then, that that's a big issue. With Russia, that's complicated. Russia um, currently right now um, is not helping Venezuela that much because Russia is not complying with cutbacks in oil production, which would be the best thing that Russia could do now, is to cut back. But in general, they they have helped uh, protect uh, the the regime. But right now, Russia is not exactly helping Venezuela, right now.
0: Okay. Yes. My name is Elvira
5: Banks. I'm a Venezuelan-American. I just have a question uh, talking about the money-wise. Uh, Venezuela's oil, of course, is going downhill, but uh, drug trafficking is very lucrative. So my question is, considering the case of the narco-sobrinos and all the Celia's uh, nephews, I'm not going into details, and the proof of Tareka uh, involved in uh, terrorism, which no one has mentioned, terrorism and drug trafficking. So Venezuela is a global menace. So after all these... Is there any way, one way of getting Maduro out of the regime because Venezuela is a menace? Sad to say, I'm Venezuelan. Is there any way to have, I don't know, an international coalition or another OAS or whatever or United Nations working on Venezuela, considering the drug trafficking, which is already proved, and and the
2: terrorism?
3: Um, Well, you know, this has been the the real difficulty. We have had a very difficult. I don't know what has been harder to get the United States to get more decisive or to get Latin Americans to even care about the subject. We are now at a situation where, for the first time, there is the possibility of an international Latin American coalition, but it has taken so long to to, to form, and it doesn't have that much uh, power. So I, I wouldn't be too optimistic of uh, an international coalition. Having said that, uh, and Hector was there, uh, uh, the OAS. What we saw this week is really huge. Seeing Mexico, which is the country in the Americas that respects sovereignty as if it were uh, 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 the country that has the most to hide, um, leading, leading the effort to try to sanction Venezuela, the OAS, is, is major. Um, uh, so we're at a good point uh, with this, although clearly not good enough to to produce enough pressure. Um, um, uh, Gustavo mentioned the external pressure, and and from my count, four of the 20 interrupted presidencies came down because of serious external pressure. So it's absolutely true that it can do the job. But the problem with Chavismo is that in addition to being a a petrostate, narco-state, it has a lot of soft power among the left. And for a while, Latin America was dominated by leftist governments, and and that reduced the chances of diplomacy working to to change the regime in Venezuela.
1: Yes. Yes, Duke Banks. um, Say, I'm from the Coordinador Internacional Venezolana, which is an opposition group that was formed here about 12 years ago. Um, I'm Venezuelan-American also. Um, I guess more for Hector, because I saw you at the OAS for the Human Rights Forum uh, about Venezuela last week, and you mentioned about, you know, you have to give credit to the Venezuelan regime and foreign relations. At that forum, which you might want to elaborate, was how disruptive the end was that basically there was no questions and answers because of what happened. And also yesterday at the OAS, the closing kind of show that the Venezuelan uh, vice minister put on, insulting everybody to the point that the Mexican ambassador got up and in English scolded him for not maintaining the core. There seems to be an element of disruption and kind of, you know, throwing out the cards as a way of kind of survival. And I guess at what point is the Americans, you know, other countries going to say, we're fed up with this?
4: I agree. But if you're fed up, the the worst you can do is to react, because that's a game. And uh, to disrupt the conversation about the the issues, right? I mean, it's, it's like a, pretty much every political operation knows that the important thing is to to change the agenda and then the agenda is no longer human rights violations in uh, in Venezuela but the agenda is the show that uh, foreign policy uh, officials put together right and uh, yeah the Mexicans <laughs> reacted in a very un mexican way by the way because <laughs> because they are very professional very and particularly this ambassador who i agree with uh, Javier his uh, his uh, speech yesterday at the OAS was absolutely magnificent, but also historical, precisely because of what you just said. I mean, this is uh, the country that has made uh, non-intervention in other countries' uh, internal politics, particularly Latin American internal politics, the... Center of its foreign policy, and then yesterday was just we we witnessed history yesterday in terms of you know Mexican foreign policy historically speaking. I mean in in, in time, over time. But yes, uh, that's that's what happens. That's what they're going to keep doing, I think. And uh, uh, the issue is that uh, also we have to keep in mind this. Uh, Last year, in June, uh, in that session, session uh, Almagro convoked for Article 20. Now we are in 20 and a half, perhaps, because we're not there 21 yet, which is vote for suspension or anything like that, which is not, you know, really the way to go, I don't think. But for 10 years, the OAS was a ministry of Hugo Chávez, turning the organization into complete irrelevance. Uh, it was, you know, the, the really, uh, you know, that that election on, uh, to approve the Orden del Dia the, uh, last year in June, that it was, you know, Almagro had the votes and then, well, then we had the votes to discuss. <laughs> that, that's, that's what we're talking about. was the first time any discussion on Venezuela had the vote to take place in 10 years. Well, the price of oil began to decline already in 2011, 2012. This is, yeah, perhaps the inertia of that of that time, but also the the, the effectiveness of Venezuelan foreign policy in all this to control that that particular space, and that has begun to change. Well, because uh, the deterioration is big, the OAS is in different hands, uh, the hemisphere is changing. You know, I was I was thinking I was there and an Ecuador. Voted for, with Venezuela yesterday, and I was sitting next to someone, and I said, until Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. And, and uh, we, we don't know, obviously, but, uh, well, this is the, the change of cycle that this has been the super cycle of the commodities that allow this group of people to borrow a, a very effective discourse from Cuba about perpetuation and, and, and enjoy 10, 15-plus years of good business, corruption, and full control of the state apparatus. All of this with a pretend, pretend, pretense, uh, revolution, people, you name it, uh, right? Uh, which is in a, an additional tragedy, I think, which is the, the tragedy of the Latin American left post this cycle, which I think Almagro... Uh, Tries to sort of represent that other voice. He's is a, a, someone from the left. He was foreign minister of Mujica, uh, but he he expresses that that left that uh, well with all this will be divorced from human rights, democracy, separation of power, constitutional uh, arrangements, and so on and so forth. And and that's that's another tragedy, the next tragedy. What's going to happen with that
0: with the left in Latin America? We still have time for one last question. And the gentleman here on the, at my right. (laughs) Yeah. Hi, I am Reynaldo Rojas.
6: I am Venezuelan American too. Um, I'm going to make a comment. Um, I went to school in Ohio Wesleyan University and Xavier University in Ohio some years ago. And uh, people used to ask me, where is Venezuela? Almost no one knew where's that little country. And uh, I used to say Venezuela is where the Andean mountains, the Caribbean Sea, and the Amazonian jungle gather, go and check it in a map. Right now, if some people ask me where's Venezuela or what is Venezuela, I would say Venezuela is where the Cuban regime, the American government, the Chinese, and the Russians gather. Go and see what their interests are in Venezuela, and you'll find out why is that resilience of the Maduro regime. The point. I'm making is that Venezuela for the last 18 years had been the piñata of of the Americas. Everyone wanted a piece of Venezuela. And right now, there are some of them that they know they have to leave the party, and some of them, they want to keep partying in in our country. Thank you.
5: What well, I uh, what I what I want to say at, uh, in the last instance is that uh, the thing that we have to do in Venezuela is to go on civic insurgency. We have delayed civic insurgency for too long a time. Talking about alternatives that never were realized we went after elections they that path is close to us we went after a dialogue that path is close to us the only way open to us today is going on a civic insurgency mode we have to go and protest against the the, the dictatorship it's not a government it's a narco regime. And until we realize what we, who are we up against, uh, Venezuela will keep muddling through. But again, I am in in a minority in Venezuela. The majority in Venezuela is still dreaming of dialogue, still dreaming of elections, and of accommodation with the regime. Uh, I don't. I don't believe this is possible.
0: Okay. We, um, this unfortunately has come to the end. Why don't we give a round of applause to our fantastic panel. Thank you very much.